Well, good morning again. We are continuing a new series we've just started called Why Jesus? And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at the common objections to the Christian faith. Last week we looked at the problem of narrow-mindedness. We talked about how the narrowness of Christian doctrine actually uniquely leads us to a place of, of, of broad openness, generosity in the way that we see people and love people, even people that disagree with us. This week we're going to look at the problem of injustice. The problem of injustice, and we want to start in Daniel chapter 9 today. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow with us, we'll be in Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be in a few different passages. And if you don't have a Bible and want to follow, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs there. Daniel 9 is found on page 746. 746. Um, while you're turning there to Daniel 9, as we talk about the problem of injustice, this is a, as a big problem. First of all, let's just talk about definitions. Um, the word justice and righteousness are the same word biblically. Um, so in English, we tend to use those two different words in different contexts based on what feels right uh, as we write in English or as a translator would translate the Bible in English. But they are the same word. And so we need to understand that. And biblically, again, righteousness and justice is rooted in God's character. And so the biblical story, the biblical framework is that we're not just unless we're doing things like God does. So we have to look to him to define what justice is, what righteousness is. We need his help to be righteous, to be just. On our own, we don't do a very good job of it. We kind of mess things up. And so there's this concept biblically of righteousness, of justice. It is rooted in God. It's reflected in his law. And he's the one that's going to help us to actually uh, reflect him, be like him, and be just and be righteous. Um, there's also, I think, it's kind of helpful to look in the Old Testament. I'm just going to throw these out. We'll, we'll really spend most of our time in, in Daniel 9, um, but I'll just throw out these couple of definitions of justice from Deuteronomy, um, because I think we tend to define justice differently based on whether we are uh, politically conservative or politically liberal in our country. Um, and it's helpful to understand that both of those um, movements' definition of justice are somewhat rooted in the biblical framework, right? We might disagree with how they go with it, but they're both rooted. There's, there's a, a nugget there that's true on both sides. And so here's what I would call the more conservative view of justice in Deuteronomy 16.19. Deuteronomy 16.19 says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. This is what I would call the conservative definition of justice because it emphasizes uh, that it should be equal and the same. You shouldn't take a bribe. You shouldn't show partiality. Partiality means I'm giving you favor because of this. I'm giving you favor because of that. So conservatives tend to define justice as this kind of cold, rational thing, right? It's set in stone, and it doesn't change based on the person. That's what justice should be. That's the ideal of justice by, by many from that standard. And that is a biblical definition of justice. It should be the same, period, the end. It's, it's always the same. It's universal. Deuteronomy 27 describes justice this way. Deuteronomy 27 says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice, do the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. And so there's this, this uh, concept biblically that justice is something that's the same. It's written in stone. It's written in the Ten Commandments. It's written in God's law. Justice is due people. It shouldn't be different for different people. There's, there's just a clear black and white right and wrong. And then there's also the concept, though, that there are the weak. 
And those are the people that are particularly victims of injustice. And we need to watch out for them. And so biblically, part of justice is not just doing the right thing myself as an individual, right? I haven't broken any laws. I haven't done anything wrong, right? We tend to, that's, that's kind of individual view of justice. But it's also caring for those who have been abused. That's part of biblically caring for justice is to step out of my own comfort circle and step into the comfort circle or the discomfort circle of someone who's, who's been abused, who's been oppressed. And so scripture repeatedly in the Old and New Testament reflects this this, uh, these kind of different categories of people, the sojourner, right, the foreigner. Watch out for the foreigner. Watch out for the fatherless. Watch out for the widow. Watch out for these categories of people who are weak, who are going to be more exploited by the wicked. We have to have special care to watch out for them because for those of us that are strong, we're going to get justice. It's the weak that get exploited. And so we need to watch out for them. And so we need to understand that Biblically, we, we kind of have to contain all of those things. If you want to study more biblical concepts of justice, I have four great books for you. We're continuing to sell the other books in the hallway. Well, not really sell because we're a church, right? So we're continuing to give to you for a suggested donation some books out there. So if you want those books, The, the Reason for God and Case for Christ, some of those books about apologetics are still in the hallway. These are books that are not for sale. These are mine. I've marked them up, so please don't steal them. But if you want to come look at them, you can come look at them. One is uh, Tim Keller's Generous Justice. It helps you to understand how the gospel creates in us a generosity so that we look out for the justice that other people need. We're not just worried about our own justice, but we actually care about others. We care about the weak. Very helpful book. This one is called Good News About Injustice by Gary Haugen. Uh, and this one is written about the founding of the International Justice Mission, which is a mission agency that he started to try to help the oppressed in other countries. They're famous for setting free like teenagers that have been kidnapped and put into brothels. And uh, they'll go in and they'll do investigative work and they'll get those girls set free. So literally setting slaves free and doing things like that. So it's a great organization and a great book. Also, if you're interested theologically in understanding the Old Testament framework for ethics and justice and how that's picked up by Jesus, this book is great. It's called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament by Christopher J. H. Wright. So uh, this one is not to be confused with N.T. Wright, who's another author, but Chris Wright writes a great book, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, helps you to see the connection, right? A lot of times we just think of like, okay, Jesus came in, we threw out the Old Testament, started over again. He shows how really everything Jesus said was rooted in the ethics and in the justice of the Old Testament. And then finally, um, once we figure out that God wants us to help people that are hurting, we've got to figure out how to do it effectively, right? Because the Bible says, he who does not work shall not eat. You know, we don't want to just throw money at people and enable them. We, we want to help them in a way that is sustainable, that is really helping them get up on their own feet. And so this book is really helpful. It's called When Helping Hurts. It's by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. The subtitle is How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. I, I, I can't recommend this enough if you're involved in any kind of social work or, or helping the poor or working with uh, struggling people. It's a great, great book. And we've used that a lot in our work in Guatemala as well to kind of help us to think through what we're doing there. All right, so the, the problem of injustice, it's a real problem. And we're tempted to deny it. And so I just want to start off, and this is something you'll see in the text. I want to start off saying, if, if a non-believer tells you, I have a problem with Jesus, I have a problem with Christianity, because there's been so much injustice that's been committed by, by Christians or by people at least doing things in the name of Christ. 
I think the best place to start is just to say, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's, that's a serious problem, and horrible things have been done in the name of Christ. Now, if, if you get a chance to, to you know, have a more nuanced discussion, you can say, well, I don't know that all those things were committed by true believers, right? And I don't think that that really reflects the, the ethics of Christ, and there's a lot more that can be said. But I think it's important to start with, yeah, we're guilty. Christianity is uniquely, uniquely among world religions, a, a, a religion that says we're wrong. Like, like that's built into our faith. And we need to understand that. And we need to, to use that when we're communicating it with people. Because so often people see the, the cultural version of Christianity. The cultural version of Christianity is, I'm better than you. I'm a good person. And that's what it means to be a Christian. You're a bad person. I'm a good person. It's more complicated than that, right? The, the only way Christianity says the only way you can become a good person is by God breaking your heart and helping you come to face with the reality that you're not really a good person, right? You're, you're broken. You are needy. You need what Jesus has done for you. And that, that faith transformation, that recognizing your own lack of justice and your need for alien justice, alien righteousness, that can only be received by faith. As you go through that, we call that being born again. And then that begins to change your heart. And then that begins to change your behavior. So we start to do justice based on an alien justice, an alien righteousness given, given to us by faith. That's unique to Christianity. That's different than other religions. So let's, let's read Daniel then. Keep in mind the concept of something saying, someone saying, the church, followers of Christ, people like you have done bad things. This is Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is probably the holiest guy we see in the Bible. Of all the Bible characters, he's the one where we don't see him sinning. Pretty much everybody else in the Bible does all kinds of stupid, horrible, embarrassing stuff. But Daniel, I mean, he, he's just good pretty much all the time. Now, we know because we understand we have a right theology of humanity. We know he's a sinner too. But it's just important to, to point out that he's really the holiest guy we're aware of in the Bible next to Jesus, of course. But he's this one character that, that always does right. And that helps us to understand what's going on here in this text. Look at, starting in verse 3, Daniel chapter 9, verse 3 says, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So, so basically they would just like put on nasty clothes and sit in the dirt when they were trying to show that they were sad. They were broken before God. So sackcloth, ashes. Verse 4 says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. Read that again. Okay, remember, holiest guy in the Bible. Verse 5 says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. He goes on and says, We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers. And to all the people of the land, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Again, remember, it's justice. So to you, Lord, belongs the justice. But to us, open shame. So here's the holiest man in the Bible saying, God, we are sinners. We are guilty. So when someone comes to you and says, I have a big problem with the faith because people have done bad things in, in the name of, of Jesus, in the name of religion, I think Daniel's starting point is, is what our starting point should be and say, yeah, we've, we've done wrong. Even if you're not guilty of that wrong. Daniel isn't guilty of any of the things 
that the Jews were guilty of that he's talking about here. These were generations before him that sinned and the Jews were cast into exile. Daniel here is confessing the sins of previous generations. So when people talk to you about the the sin of the Crusades, the sin of slavery in our country, any of these kind of sins, don't say, well, I didn't do that. That's not what Daniel does. The holiest guy in the Bible says, yeah, we've we've sinned. We were wrong. We, We messed up. Let me pray for us and we'll look at this in more detail. God, we, we ask for your help this morning. We pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would lead us and that your spirit would join with us. These are some difficult ideas. And, and we pray for your wisdom, your guidance. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Gary Haugen, who wrote this book, um, Good News. What is it called? I just told you about it. Good News About Injustice. Gary Haugen wrote this book uh, several years ago, and he tells a story about uh, riding a bus to work in 1994. He's riding a bus to work in Washington, D.C. He was kind of a high-power attorney, worked for the Justice Department, and he's talking about how routine it was, how peaceful it was, riding this bus. He'd done it hundreds of times before, um, noticing, you know, the same scenes that he would notice every day. He's in a climate-controlled bus, just kind of noticing that he's comfortable, He's reading his newspaper. There's a little glare that comes off a building at the same place, you know, every day. And so it's just this normal routine. The glare shines on his newspaper. He usually stops and looks up for a minute until the glare goes away. And then he goes back to his paper, notices the other people on the bus who are kind of nodding off to sleep peacefully or maybe reading or maybe listening to something. And he said on this particular day as he's riding the bus to work, he just wanted to scream at all the people on the bus. He said he just wanted to scream to the people on the bus and say, just 48 hours ago, I was standing among dead bodies in a muddy grave in Africa because he had been part of the team that had gone to document the human rights abuses in Rwanda when the genocide occurred there. About half a million defenseless women and children were hacked to death all over the small country of Rwanda. There was tribal warfare between the Hutus and the Tutsi tribes there. There'd been civil war on and off throughout the years, but this is the worst that they'd ever seen. And many of you have heard about the genocide in Rwanda and how horrible it was. Well, Gary Haugen's job was to just go and actually document it, to actually say this is what happened, to actually walk through those places and see the horrors of that. And so it just, it really shook his world, kind of blew his mind. It it brought him to such a place of brokenness, he kind of lost it and decided to start this Christian ministry, right? I mean, it broke him that much. He, he, he just felt like, I've got to do more to help people in the world. And so now their ministry, the International Justice Mission, does things to set free captives in other countries to help people who are oppressed, who are the victims of oppression and injustice. And so what that did for, for Gary was it broke him and it brought him to a place of wanting to reflect the love that Jesus had shown to him. And I hope that we would kind of walk in the same way, right? We might not start, we don't have the same connections as a Justice Department UN lawyer person, right? We may not start the same kind of ministry. We might not do the same kind of thing. But we all should come to a place of brokenness from injustice. We should come to a place where we want God to use us to bring justice to those who don't have justice. That we want him to push us out into the world to make changes, to make a difference. One of the things that was most horrible about this, uh, this genocide in Rwanda is that 
the vast majority of the people on both sides were Christians. It wasn't like it was, you know, the bad people of this religion killing the other people. It was, it was Christians killing each other. And so again, when someone says, and all these horrible atrocities have occurred in the name of Christ, we have to say, yeah, you're right, that's horrible. But Christianity alone has the ability to critique itself. Christianity alone starts off with a standing point that we've got a serious problem and only God can come in from the outside to fix us. We can't fix ourselves. And, and so the first thing I want us to really dwell on is that, that biblical truth that we see in the gospel. So the first thing I want us to see is, is that Jesus defeats injustice. So yes, there is a universal justice problem and only Jesus can fix it. And so I want us to flip over to Romans. Flip over to Romans chapter 3. I believe the attitude you see expressed by Daniel is a Christ-like attitude, and the nuts and bolts are displayed in the gospel. The nuts and bolts we'll see in Romans 3. If you flip over, it's on page uh, 941 in the Black Bibles, or 940. Romans chapter 3, we'll start off in verse 9. And we'll look at how Jesus defeats injustice. Again, remember, justice and righteousness are the same word. Um, again, I think in English we tend to think of justice as more of a legal term, and we think of righteousness more as a personal term, but biblically they're the same. So in our personal lives, we should uh, personally and individually do right and discern right from wrong, but also we should concerned about, be concerned about systemic righteousness. We, we shouldn't have systems that oppress the poor and hurt the weak. We should so systemically have righteousness and individually have righteousness. Here Paul is focused on uh, the righteousness problem in the world, and he starts off in chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. What is he saying? So let me pick up the context a little bit. Chapter 1 was talking about how bad the pagans are, right? So we're, we're church people, so we can join in with them. Yeah, those pagans are bad, right? And Paul turns it on us, the religious people, and says, and you are too. Right? Having the law, having God's truth isn't enough to make us good. We need God's internal spiritual transformation. So that, that's what Paul is always hammering home. Religion's not enough. Having the law is not enough. Having God's revealed will is great. It's a blessing, but it doesn't change you. The law doesn't change you. Only Jesus changes you. So Paul's going to go on here. He's saying, so yeah, the pagans have the problem and the Jews have the problem too. Religious people, rebellious people, we've all got the same problem. Us religious people, we just hide it better, right? Rebellion people are, rebellious people are just more honest about their problem. But, but we all have a righteousness problem. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews, those with the law, and Greeks, those without God's law, are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. He's not quoting from the Psalms, and what's fascinating is this Psalm is repeated. It's like David's favorite Psalm, so he does it twice and he gives it different endings. So, so reading this, just understand, this is so important to David, he's put it in the Psalm book twice. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps. Poisonous snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul is saying that applies to, again, rebellious people, but it also applies to religious 
people, people gathering around God's law and God's standards of righteousness saying, hey, I'm better than those people. Paul says, no, we're, we're all sinners. Verse 19 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We're saying the law can't justify you. The law just shows you God's standards of righteousness. So here's God's standards. His law says this is what righteousness is. We can't just read it and and be good. We need a heart that has to be changed. So he says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified, made righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So they, they point us to it, but they don't actually bring it, right? Jesus brings it. They, they point to it, say that it's coming, you need it, and it's only in Jesus. It says it this way, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. There's not a distinction between religious and rebellious. It's, it's anyone who believes. No matter what's your background, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, there's no distinction. It's for all who believe. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so no matter what your sins in your past are, no matter how wicked you think you are, the only way to be justified is by what Jesus has done for us. The biblical story is that Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. The word later is propitiation. We saw that word last week as well. He, he took our sin upon himself so that we could be declared righteous, so that he takes our sin and Jesus gives his righteousness to us so that by faith God delights in us and he sees us as just. He sees us as righteous. No matter what you've done, no matter how good you think you are, that's not enough. Only Jesus' goodness is enough. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even those who don't think they've sinned, they've sinned too. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate here, whether you're religious or you're rebellious. It says in verse 25, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as propitiation, the one that makes God favorable towards us by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And so this is saying, basically, God lets the world keep going. He doesn't just immediately, you know, the whole world isn't just torched the first time we sin, but God has forbearance. There's patience there. He, he's a saving God. He's a patient God. He's a loving God. And he poured, his, he poured our sins on to Jesus. He says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how can a just God allow so much injustice? Well, the biblical answer is Jesus. That, that's how. He, he makes the world right by, by what Jesus did for us, by Jesus taking our sins upon himself, becoming our justice. So he's both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. We don't, we don't get to boast then, Right? So as religious people, we've worked so hard at being good. We don't, there's no boasting in that. It's only what Jesus has done for us. By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles only? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. And he goes on, again, to push for this unity among the people who have grown up far from God and the people who have grown up thinking they're God's favorite people because of whatever neighborhood or church 
or group they belong to. He says, no matter where you've grown up, no matter how good you think you are, we're all sinners who can only be made just by the alien justice, the alien righteousness of Jesus being given to us. That, that's our only hope. That's the only thing that really will change us. And so the danger is when we start to believe that we can somehow externally enforce justice through social constructs or things that we can do, we can make ourselves just. Should we fight for just society? Yes. Should we push to have justice for our neighbors? Yes. But can we ultimately make ourselves and make other people just apart from Jesus? No. It has to start with heart transformation. And that's why the church is committed to be a place that proclaims Jesus as the answer. Now, as we see, as we go on this morning, it's got to work itself out in real life. We still have to be just. We still have to do good things for people, but it has to start with a recognition that we're not just. And so when people talk about the atrocities that have been committed, we say, yeah, that's, yeah that's, that was bad. We, we don't approve of that. We don't, we don't want that. And the Crusades is a favorite that uh, people like to bring up about how wrong Christians are because of the Crusades. You may not be familiar with the Crusades historically. It was when... Uh, basically, in general, European Christians were uh, fighting to defeat Islam and Jews to take over Jerusalem. And so it's basically saying we can establish the church through political means. Of course, Jesus was very clear that the church wouldn't be built that way. He told Peter, you know, put away your sword. That's not how we're going to build this kingdom. We're going to build the kingdom by, by faith and by my sacrifice. And so you may have heard the story about Peter the Hermit. Anybody ever heard of Peter the Hermit? He was part of the Crusades. He was a guy that rallied a bunch of peasants, right? So normally it was the knights. I have a picture here of knights conquering with the cross on their chest. There's this one guy named Peter the Hermit who was kind of an ordinary guy, and he was gathering an army of peasants with him. The, the problem was they just kind of pillaged and burned along the way trying to work their way to Jerusalem. They actually killed 4,000 Christians in one of the towns they went through in Yugoslavia. Just just great horrors committed in the name of establishing God's justice on the earth. We have to be very careful that we don't start to think that we can establish God's justice with the sword, but recognize that we can only be just as God changes our hearts. Now, does Romans say that there's a place for government? Is there a place for the power of the sword? Yes, we're in Fort Hood, Texas. We, we recognize that God has servants to execute justice. We, we believe in soldiers. We believe in the army. But the church will not be built by an army. The church, God's kingdom, will not be built by an army. It'll be built as people submit their hearts to Jesus, as they recognize their own lack of justice and their need of alien justice that can only come by faith in Jesus. So that's my question for you starting off. Do, do you recognize that need? Do you recognize that only Jesus can defeat the injustice in your own heart? Do you even recognize that it's there, right? Paul Read back through Romans 1, 2, and 3. Paul's very clear that even those of us that are most religious, that are most careful about how we live, there's still injustice in our heart. There's still sin. We still need Jesus. We can't do it on our own. The next thing I want us to see is that religion then fails against injustice. R religion's not enough. Formal religion's not enough. Only personal transformation through Jesus is enough. And if you'll flip over again, we'll flip over to Isaiah 58. In Isaiah 58, God condemns the Jews for practicing formal religion without any real change. And this is really reflective of what we see in James, uh, the book of James. God says that it's, it's not enough to just say you believe something, you actually have to live it out, right? And so this is kind of reflected here 
in Isaiah chapter 58. It's page 617 in the Black Bibles. Page 617, Isaiah chapter 58 says, Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. This is really important for us to hear in a, in a kind of a religious part of the country, right? The South, we, we talk, talk about this being the Bible Belt sometimes. So many religious people, there's a lot of people all over this community this morning that are in church. Are we actually making any difference in our community, though? Or are we just delighting to draw near to God through religious means without, without actually living it out in real life? God says in verse 3, why have we, this is their voice talking, the religious people, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And the answer is, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is this such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Now he's going to tell him the kind of fast he's looking for. How do you, how should we approach God? It says in verse 6, Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. When the church just does worship, but doesn't actually do anything for hurting people, this weird kind of disjointing thing happens. There's this kind of crumbling that starts to take place where people see through what we're saying and they see through what we're practicing. And so God told his people in the Old Testament, and like I said, this is echoed in James, don't, don't just say you have faith, don't just do religious things and talk religious talk, but, but then not help someone in need. He said it should be reflected in how we live. We should actually make a difference. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was very critical of the church in Germany not standing up against Hitler. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer left a a cushy teaching position in America to to go back to be with his people, to pastor his people and to push back against Hitler in Germany and and then died as a martyr. He talked to, I had a picture here of of folks in the Holocaust. We know during that time Hitler killed thousands and thousands of Jews. And uh, we we don't want to look at that picture any longer because it's horrible. Um, But... Horrible things happen when the church doesn't do anything. And that's a big part of what happened in Germany. Bonhoeffer talks about the distinction between costly grace and cheap grace. There's different ways to describe this, but I would say it this way. Real grace changes you. It doesn't make you perfect, right? We're stumblers. We're sinners. We continue to struggle, but it changes us and it compels us to do something. And that's what James is talking about when he echoes the words of Isaiah 58. And James, he says, you've got to do something. Don't just say you have faith. You've got to to do something. That's not a real faith. It's a dead faith unless you do something with it. And so my question for you, if if you're 
uh, consider yourself a follower of Christ, does, does being a follower of Christ just consist of uh, formal worship practices, or does it change the way you live in a daily way? I want to give you just a couple of just starting points. Maybe you're thinking, okay, I'll, what, what can I do? Um, and we said in two weeks, Compassion International is going to be here. We're going to encourage you to sponsor a child through Compassion International. As I visited Compassion International, I was reading the book When Helping Hurts, and I was just blown away at how well they live out um, these principles in When Helping Hurts. They, they do it really, really well. So we want to partner with this organization to give you uh, an opportunity to, to help those who are oppressed, to help those who are hurting, to show mercy and show grace to those who have been victims oftentimes of injustice. That's just a little thing you, you can do. Again and again throughout the Bible, it says the way we reflect God's righteousness and God's justice is we don't just care for right and wrong in ourselves, but we step into other people's need. So what are some ways you could step into other people's needs? Maybe it's through Compassion International. Maybe it's through your involvement here in this community. Maybe it's through foster care. Maybe it's through adoption, caring for the orphan. Maybe it's something else. I would recommend the International Justice Mission as well, the, the organization I talked about Gary Haugen founded after documenting the abuses in Rwanda. But there are ministries that you can partner with to, to make a difference, to, to care for the hurting, to care for the needy, to reflect God's righteousness. The last thing I want us to look at is how individualism fails against injustice as well. So going back to Daniel 9, we'll finish in Daniel 9. Where we started in Daniel 9, again, I'll just reset the stage. Um, Daniel, who has personally been just, confessed the sins of injustice that his people were guilty for. And so what I would say, my, my thesis here then is that it's not enough to just do right and wrong in your own family, in the, in the closed confines of your own home. It needs to start there, right? A lot of you, you, you need to start there. That's step one. But if we're going to reflect what Jesus is like, we're going to step out of our comfort into the messiness of other people's brokenness. And this is, this is going to look different for different people. I can't dictate how that looks, but like I said, again and again in the Old Testament, it talks about the concept of caring for the orphan and the widow. Caring for the people who are going to most commonly be the victims of injustice. As we step in and partner with them, those of us who have resources, partner with those that don't have resources, then we're going to reflect to the world what God's justice is like. And our country, I think, is arguably the best country in the world. Thankful that God brought me up in this country. Some, some incredible blessings of being here. But with those blessings come incredible responsibility, right? In our country, we were founded on this idea of individualism, which I think makes for some really good political theory, but it, but it doesn't work as well for practicing the daily Christian life. So I want us to understand that distinction. Um, we may be very proud of our country's founding, and it may be the best country in the world, but it's not the same thing as Christianity. They're not the same thing. They're two different things. We need to be able to see those as two different things. One is a construct that may be a really good construct, and the other is our faith. And our faith is not individualism. Individualism and all the, the blessings of that kind of view of law was a part of our founding, and it's, and it's good in some ways for justice, but it's not good when it's how we live our daily life as Christians. And so I'm just going to read again Daniel 9, starting in verse 3. He doesn't just see himself as an individual. He, he roots himself in, in the community. He says, I turned my face to the Lord, 
seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Daniel is very clear that he's not, he's not just this outside observer. He's not just this holy guy standing on the outside critiquing culture, saying, you're bad, you need to do this, you need to do that. He, he steps into it. What I want you to see is how, how Daniel is mimicking what Christ does there. And it says in Philippians that Jesus left the comforts of heaven and he entered into our world to, to save us, to take our sin upon himself. So, so Daniel here, arguably not guilty for any of the sins he's confessing, but he's taking them before God. He's acting in a priestly way. He's coming before God saying, I'm a part of this people and we've sinned. So when a non-believer says, man, Christians have done bad things and in the name of Christ, been uh, unjust, committed injustices. You say, yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and we should work to correct those things, right? We should work to help those who are hurting. We should work to help those who have been victims of oppression. And as we, as we do that, then we actually reflect what Jesus is like. Then we start pointing people to God's righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. Leslie Newbigin talks about the... Uh, talks about the legacy of individualism and, the, and kind of the, the thought of Kant and Descartes that led to a lot of the, the thinking that was the founding of our country that I ref, referenced earlier. The danger of that is, is that we would think as individuals or we would think in a kind of a pure, cold, logical way that we can stand on the outside and make right judgments apart from being a part of God's people, apart from being transformed spiritually by Jesus. And the problem is we're, we're just not that objective. Newbigin talks about this uh, critique, and he talks about it as like this floating eyeball. It just floats out in space. Kind of gross, right? Um, an eyeball should be a part of the body. It's connected to a person, right? I mean, it, it lives in community with the other members, and, and we can't, through cold, pure reason, just sit on the sideline and critique culture and critique others. We, we have to be a part of community. There's this concept th- through this kind of intellectual framework that um, logic... Is, uh, is kind of separate. It's like a separate category. And if, if we're really reasonable and logical, we can be scientific and we can work our way to the truth. But the biblical story is, is we can't do that. When we're standing on the sideline doing it on our own, our, our logic gets bent. It gets taken off track. And the way Romans 1 says it, we begin to worship created things instead of the creator. And our logic goes a little haywire. If you want a, a really logical system, a really logical system is Nietzsche's nihilism. You ever studied Nietzsche? Anybody read Nietzsche? It's, it's scary. I mean, he's the foundation that, that led Adolf Hitler to do a lot of what he did. So that, that, that's, that's really where pure, cold, independent human logic leads. We have to submit ourselves to the community. We, we can't be individuals standing off on our own. We have to submit ourselves to God and who he is and what he's done for us through Jesus, and then he'll transform us and make us the kind of people that are like him that, that wants to enter into the pain of others, that wants to enter into help when other people are hurting. 
Again, I would ask you to just pray this week. Like, God, what would you have me to do this week? What, what would be a next step? Like I said, there's some, there's some simple steps you can take. In a couple of weeks, we'll give you an opportunity to work with Compassion International. Uh, you may be a part of city government where you can just be a representative for justice. You can just look out for those that are weak in the, in the way that you execute city government. Some of you are educators and, and you're working every day to help people that are hurting and in bad spots. I don't know what sphere of influence God has you in, but God would have you represent his justice, his righteousness wherever you go. So God may be calling you to adopt, maybe calling you to keep foster kids. He might be calling you to sponsor a compassion kid or become a partner with the International Justice Mission. God may be putting something in your mind right now, calling you to something that I've never even thought of. But, but pray and ask him, God, what, what would you have me do this week? How could I be like you this week? How could I, by faith in Jesus, by the alien righteousness that you give me through Jesus, be a representative of your justice this week? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you transform us to be more like your son. I pray that we would not have a dead faith that James warns us about, but we would have a real and living faith that looks like something, that makes a difference. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.